Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is October 20th, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 4. Politicoast is the podcast that explores what is happening in British Columbia and around the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicoast Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. And this week we're joined by special guest Micah. Hello! Micah, why don't you give us a quick background on why you wanted to be part of the show today? Well, first and foremost, I wanted my political views to be broadcast to the dozens of listeners. And more importantly, I think that what Ian, you do, and what you do, Scott, is a public service to the people of British Columbia, and you are to be commended. And if I can help in any way, then I am happy to do so. And specifically, we're going to get into it later on in the episode, but we're going to talk about the Supreme Court of Canada, and your background is in law, so you maybe know something about this. That's right, and I will just cut to the chase here and say that my views in no way reflect those of my employer. (laughs) Nothing like proving yourself as a lawyer. That's right. All right, our first segment is the big news this week, was the minister decided to fire the entire Vancouver school board and appoint a new trustee to run it for them. This is not an entirely shocking turn of events, as a few weeks ago we heard about, and we discussed the controversies around the entire management going on stress leave, but it was kind of a shock announcement because it sounded like the board was planning to pass a balanced budget on Monday evening, but Monday morning the minister preempted that with his announcement. The timing's very interesting. For me, it's just that sort of, what's he trying to accomplish? Because the Vancouver School Board, it's been since June when they were supposed to pass a balanced budget, and that's when they first refused to. And they've been in this sort of loggerheads moment since then. And the question is, why now? Yeah, that's definitely a good question. As you mentioned, the time is really suspicious about why it happened immediately before they were supposed to pass a budget. So yeah, I admittedly just haven't been able to exactly figure out what Bernier's uh, plan on this whole thing is and what the underlying strategy behind it because from the outside, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense why you fire them just as they were coming around. Yeah, Patty Bacchus had a long piece that just came out today in the Vancouver Observer with her sort of side of the story, Patty Bacchus being one of the longtime Vision Vancouver trustees, and she talked about the sort of pressure they've been under facing constant cuts and a requirement from this government that they do more with less and that they reach this 95% capacity because the minister doesn't want to pay for empty seats. Meanwhile, she's also talking about how the city of Vancouver pays enough in property taxes that they should be able to afford to fund the system more. And then there's the biased point of view where it comes back to Christy Clark's own children go to private school, and this province has continually put more money into the independent school system, the private school funding. Well, there seems to be this sort of freeze on the public sector, and it's just a very tight partisan battle between these two. Education's always been a sort of political partisan field day in BC. But this was just quite shocking to me that it would happen, you know, months before an election. Yeah, it's uh, clearly designed to send a message uh, to some extent. I suppose the real question is, who's going to be the ones receiving that and saying, yes, this is what I want. Let's go forward on this in 2017. Is there a big constituency for uh, cuts to public funding for schools? I don't know that it's people crying out for the public schools to be cut funding, but I think there might be a view in the more conservative parts of the province outside of the city of Vancouver that view 
the Vancouver School Board specifically, with suspicion, probably seeing it as far more partisan, far more left and activist. This is the school board that, you know, sort of leads the way on bringing trans rights in and bringing LGBT rights, and those are good things, in my opinion. But it's also the one that will attract the most controversy because it has political parties on the board versus out in Kelowna, say, it's just your, you know, local independent candidates for school board versus in Vancouver, you have Vision, which is seen as the NDP proxy and the nonpartisan alliance, which is seen as the BC Liberal proxy. And it's just sort of proxy war between the provincial parties. So it's maybe the BC Liberal signaling that they're being tough on the public school system because everyone needs to tighten their belts. It seems like this is a battle of two competing visions of what the school board is supposed to be. On the one hand, you have this view that the school board is supposed to be an activist for parents, for students. And on the other hand, you have the view that the school board is really supposed to be a, a bureaucratic tool. This was the view that was espoused today in the Globe and Mail. But I found it to be pretty interesting because you have two elected bodies and uh, these two groups can't agree on the budget for school spending. And as a result, you have this logjam. And one of the most important questions is when you have this issue of gridlock between two elected bodies, who is supposed to have that final say on school budgets? Do we want to be in a position where there is infinite gridlock, where decisions can't be made? Depending on which view you have, if you have the view that school boards are in fact an advocate on behalf of students, then maybe you get in a position where no decisions on the budget are ever made, where you have both groups who are just left to figure it out, come to a consensus. Whereas if you're of the view that really it's the province that is the institution that should set budgets, that should make decisions covering every aspect of education, then the province has the ability to go in and, and remove bureaucratic agents. I think that this really goes to how you see uh, the school board, what their role is in British Columbia. Even beyond that sort of higher level question, I think Mike Bernier just answered it for you. <laughs> he says, I have the authority and he, I mean, legally does have the authority under the school act and he used it. it. Do you think that that's a problem? Do you think it's an issue that Mike Bernier has this power? It's a really good question. For me personally, it's very problematic that he could just sort of, you know, swipe an elected board away at the stroke of a pen with no seeming accountability for it. What's to stop him from dismissing another board that he just doesn't like? Well, and suppose the idea is that the law requires each school board to pass a balanced budget. And it, I suppose that the School Act would prohibit Bernier from going in and removing different political actors or school board trustees without complying with the School Act. I know it's actually interesting. When I was reading Patty Bacchus's story, she talked about how the balanced budget requirement for school boards basically meant that even when the school board wouldn't pass a balanced budget in June, the superintendent still had to act under a balanced budget. So his hands were tied, and so the school board said, all right, we have our faith in you. Do what you need to do, but we're not going to give you a balanced budget because we can't make those numbers work with what we have. And so he had to start cutting services 
without authorization, sort of like the authorization came through the back door from the minister's office. Uh, that indicates the problem with having them as a subsidiary, basically, where they're going to have to act in a certain way, but there's political incentives to uh, grandstand. It gives some credence to the argument that uh, if they were having to act in a balanced budget way and were doing this anyway, you know, why make the big deal of it and do that? So I can see some points there with respect to the anti-school board position. But at the same time, it's definitely worrying that uh, a minister can just fire an elected body. But I, I don't really see a way around it either, because even if the school act wasn't there, that could always just be changed by uh, the parliament, which the liberals have a majority in anyway, just take a little longer. Yeah, they've legislated unions back to work. And that's actually going to be coming up in the Supreme Court of Canada, which we might get to. What I found really hypocritical about this whole move is Bernier's position was that the Vancouver School Board needs to cut its budget down, and that effectively means it needs to close a bunch of underutilized schools. But within days after announcing this sort of hostile takeover of the Vancouver School Board, he also said he's not going to close any schools so parents can rest assured for the time being, which just kind of opens up a lot more uncertainty and questions for me. It's like, well, you're not going to make those tough decisions and you aren't going to let the Vancouver School Board trustees make those tough decisions. What What's the answer here? What was the point of all of this? Yeah, I think this was more of a case of them just uh, trying to scramble in response to uh, public backlash on school closures and trying to have it both ways rather than a well-thought-out uh, policy position on Bernier's part. I'm wondering where the victory is for them on this issue. Like, what is the win here? The fact that they get more centralized control of the Vancouver School Board? Because, as you just pointed out, that doesn't seem to be all that great of a victory. There are a number of problems. Schools are underfunded. Parents are notoriously unhappy with the service that they receive. I'm not sure that this is a... Uh, a huge victory for Mike Bernier, even though he, some might say he, he got his wish. Yeah, that's the thing. Having a second elected body does give you distance for unpopular decisions. You see that all the time in uh, other areas of split responsibility, transit, health, where the uh, different levels of government basically play the blame game with the other ones rather than having to address the problems. Yeah, this is, for me, a really easy political win for John Horgan and the NDP. All they have to do is stomp their feet and go look at the BC Liberals dictating the education policy. And that was one thing Patty Pockus alluded to in her piece is that this might be a backdoor way, in her view, to privatize the Vancouver School Board. They could renegotiate union contracts with caretakers. They could close schools as they wanted to. They could do all kinds of different things that would, even if the school board came back in, because the minister has the authority now to force a by-election, which no one's really expecting him to do. And it's just going to be a big question mark, I think, for the next few months, at least until the election. I don't think the BC Liberals were hoping to win any seats in the city of Vancouver. This clearly means, in my mind, that they've written off this riding of Vancouver Point Grey to David Eby. Nothing makes your job easier like pissing off all of the parents in the district. Maybe some are happy with this, but doesn't seem like it's the kind of thing that makes you happy as a parent. 
Yeah, I don't really see much of an upside for them on this file at all, especially after this whole kerfuffle. It seems their best outcome is to get back to zero, and they're probably going to lose ground on this. I just wanted to add one other thing, and that is to take away a little bit from the Vancouver School Board trustees. They sort of knew the political hot potato that they were playing with, or at least they ought to have known. From the beginning, they knew that they had two options. They could either pass a budget, which would have been unpopular with the with the parents in Vancouver, or they could have refused to do it and gone out as martyrs. They knew that that was a possibility, or I assume that they knew. And they played the game, they played the political game, and decided not to pass a budget and to say that they were advocates for parents and students and that they uh, were going to more or less die on their shields to advocate for them. They wouldn't pass a budget that, in their minds, was insufficient to educate all of these people. And when they made that decision, I think that they, to a certain degree, sealed their fate. It's odd to me, this argument that somehow provincial government is any less democratic than the Vancouver School Board. They're both political entities. To go back to my earlier point, I think that this is a logjam, and although I'm utterly confused as to the politics behind this decision, I do see more legitimacy than several other skeptics, I think. Yeah, I can more or less agree with that. At least constitutionally speaking, all that power does technically rest with the province who's then delegated it to these other bodies. Uh, So I can see why, where there's definitely an argument to be made that the BC government, itself a democratic institution, has a lot of legitimacy on that file. I'm just not necessarily sold that's the best way to structure things going forward. I think I agree with that sentiment, Scott. Sounds good. Well, speaking of people who've been told they're fired, let's move into our second segment about the U.S. presidential debate and Donald Trump's third implosion on national television. Third debate implosion. He's imploded a lot before this. That's correct. All right, so Micah and I have watched the whole debate. You've watched the first half when he hadn't imploded. Let's start with you, Scott. What did you find interesting in what you watched? Well, there, he was definitely more stable than some of his really unhinged moments, but at the same time, we have to grade on a curve to say that's anything but a horrible performance. Any other presidential candidate, any one of the numerous missteps made would have sunk them. With this one, for Donald Trump in the first half, did okay. Um, you know, the usual problems, a lot of interrupting. I wasn't really sold on his position on nuclear weapons at all, which is the sort of thing that ought to terrify everybody, even the people who agree with him on everything else. Yeah, he sort of hit the base level you would hope a Republican would argue at for the first 20 minutes. He talked about the Supreme Court in a way a Republican would. He talked about immigration in a way a Republican would. He talked about trade in his way, but I think it... You know, it pivoted into, I don't want to say crazy town because I don't want to demean people with mental illnesses relative to Trump, but, you know, it pivots out of control and goes off the cliff when he gets the, what should be the softest question ever, just, if you lose this election, and I'm not saying you would, would you concede defeat? And his answer is to just go into this, wait and see, like, 
I don't want to tell you. Which, to me, is just him playing to his Breitbarty, alt-right, neo-fascist base that scares the crap out of me, because he went on for this about five, ten minutes. I didn't watch the debate live, so I only sort of read about what had been said, but as I watched it, I had to pause when he was done and just, like, sort of shake back and forth and breathe, and, like, hyperventilate a bit, because I was like, that just happened. He literally just, like, threatened to push a coup if he didn't get his way. Hillary responded as rationally and calmly as she could, talking about how terrifying it was in her own words, but how the U.S. has this tradition. The U.S. is a fairly peaceful democracy. You People who lose elections pass the torch peacefully. There's not, you know, a big uproar. Even in 2000, when Bush and Gore were within a few votes of each other in Florida, they let it go peacefully. And even though there were outstanding questions, there wasn't a long liberal conspiracy coup attempt because, you know, Bush stole the election, even though you could probably more make that case than you will be in a month when Trump gets decimated, as I hope he will. Yeah, I'm not really sure it's uh, him playing to his alt-right base that's doing this. I think it's more Trump's own character flaws that are really coming forward. The man absolutely hates to lose and be seen as anything but a winner. So... I think this is more him trying to cushion his own ego against the defeat he knows is coming than a serious attempt to upset the U.S.'s democratic institutions. Scott, to your point, I don't know if you had seen this part of the debate when I think it was Hillary Clinton talked about him feeling like the Emmys were rigged because he didn't win a third in a row. I mean, that is just outrageous. He said that he should have won. I mean, even up there on a presidential debate stage, he seems to still be upset that he hasn't won this Emmy. I'll say this for Donald Trump. He said a lot of absolutely terrifying things. I mean, he he was talking about ripping babies out of the wombs of women at, at one point. In the ninth month. In the ninth month of pregnancies. Just horrible visions, but he did something that I'm genuinely surprised he was able to do. He got a sincere moment out of Hillary Clinton when he talked about waiting to see whether he would accept the results of the 2016 election. She said, and I I really felt like Hillary was sincere when she was talking about this, she said that it was horrifying that America is premised on the idea of a peaceful handover of power. There was something that went viral today on the internet. It was George H.W. Bush's note that he wrote to to Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton, of course, beat uh, George H.W. Bush in the 1992 election. And in it, George H.W. Bush writes that Bill Clinton is going to be the president of everyone. And it's a very conciliatory note. And that's the way politics, at least in my mind ought to be done in a a constitutional democracy. Trump has managed to basically, in addition to all of the various groups that he's already completely pissed off, he has managed to horrify great deal of people that he is inflaming the passions of his supporters to go out and do something radical because he won't accept his own defeat, which is, I would add, 
certainly imminent at this point. Yeah, you had interviews in the last couple of weeks. I know they were talking about this on the 538 podcast right after the debate. You have people who are talking about how they're going to stalk you know, minority voters to the polls and make sure nothing shady happens. They won't do anything illegal other than like scare them a bit, which I'm pretty sure is illegal. Voter intimidation is almost certainly illegal, and it would not surprise me if at all when they inevitably get arrested, that's held up as evidence of the rigging of the system and the election. But it baffles me that we've gotten to this point. Well, it's you can kind of see the stage was set during the primary when, during the debate, when they asked who would accept the uh, Republican nominee and not run a third-party campaign. He was the only person who wouldn't agree to that. So this has been a long time coming, and fairly well foreshadowed. Yeah, it's a very depressing situation. Like you were saying, Micah, I liked Hillary a lot more in this debate, more than I'd seen her in the other ones. Like, she did well in the other. She performed like you would expect. But I thought, on abortion, she spoke more passionately and more sincerely about it. She clearly, well, obviously she cares about the issue she's been fighting for women's rights for so long. But, you know, that was a sort of light bulb moment for me that this will be the most pro-choice president in the U.S. history at a time when so many states keep trying to roll back reproductive freedoms. I mean, it's still a very low bar to be the most pro-choice. You just basically have to try not to get in the way of women. But it got me excited. There have been a lot of people who've said they're not excited by Hillary, whereas they were excited by Obama. But when you look at their policies that are almost identical, or she's even run, I think, some policies to the left of Obama just because of Bernie Sanders and the competition she had to put on. But then she doesn't have this persona that lends itself to the sort of charisma that Obama just has naturally that maybe Bernie has that, you know, gets people excited. But in her sort of progression from, you know, the last 30 years where, you know, she's a polished professional politician who will get stuff done. If she goes as far as she does, and the Democrats do really well with this Republican civil war that's happening, and they take either or both houses, they'll be able to accomplish a lot for a change. Yeah, I think the Republicans are getting to the point with the obstructionist nature they've had is going to start to come back and bite them. I think this election's probably shocked a few of the more moderate establishment types out of their... Uh, previous intransigence and uh, reluctance to engage and actually get stuff done. Although you still have John McCain promising to block any Democrat nominee to the Supreme Court, no matter who wins. I think we'll have to see when we get on the other side of the election. That's extreme, but not too far outside of the normal campaign rhetoric. To be fair, uh, John McCain needs to be in the Senate to do anything like that, and it's not entirely certain whether that's going to happen. Yeah, there's a good chance they're going to lose that. And then it'll be easy sailing. Like, well, maybe not easy sailing, but maybe things could get better in the U.S. Yeah, I, I think at least on the more um, conservative intellectual establishment side, I think there's been a bit of a realization in the States that their previous strategy has some drawbacks. And whether that will necessarily trickle down to the uh, elected members and how they respond in the House is another question, because the uh, incentives are not well-aligned to actually get stuff done, but I think there'll probably be a more, more of a recognition that they might have to start working on that. Well, I feel like we've actually spent too much time on this debate because of how nasty and dirty I was feeling after watching it. 
So I'm good to move on to talk about the big news out of the Supreme Court of Canada this week. So the news was that the committee that Justin Trudeau set up has nominated Justice Malcolm Rowe from Newfoundland as its best choice for the Supreme Court of Canada. Could you tell us what's different about this nomination versus literally every one of the history? It, sure. The biggest difference, I would have to say, between Trudeau's first nomination and just for ease of reference, uh, Harper's nominations is the openness with regard to who is putting together this shortlist. Uh, Stephen Harper, when he was prime minister, kept things fairly opaque, although perhaps more transparent than when Paul Martin was prime minister. Under Harper, most of the judicial appointments came through his justice minister, and it wasn't clear who was making the long lists who is populating the shortlist of judicial nominees. And the process itself seemed to work in three parts. The first part was that judges might apply and various nonpartisan individuals would suggest them to the justice minister. The justice minister would, through God knows what function, narrow down these people to a, a shortlist. They would deliver this shortlist to the prime minister and cabinet, and one would be chosen. Now, I say that with a grain of salt because not very much is known about how the judges were actually picked, not only when Stephen Harper was prime minister, but in the cases of Harper's predecessors as well. The process simply was not public in any way. What Trudeau committed to was having a, a more open process where a board would sit together, go through applicants from all over the country, put together a long list, narrow that down to a short list, deliver it up to the uh, prime minister, and the best member of that short list would be chosen, essentially given to the governor general, and the governor general would simply assent to it. I don't think that the process itself is as transparent as Trudeau has marketed it to be. We don't know how many judges applied. We certainly don't know how many minorities applied for these positions. And as we can talk about in a little bit, the individual, uh, Justice Rowe, that was selected for the Supreme Court of Canada is a very smart judge. I think he'll be great on the Supreme Court of Canada, but he's uh, another white male justice. Justin Trudeau had the opportunity to select the first Indigenous justice to the Supreme Court of Canada. He had an opportunity to have a female majority on the Supreme Court of Canada. And he didn't do those things. There are critics who say that that is, you know, un unfortunate that we don't have that diversity on the Supreme Court. But in the end, I think it's safe to say that this was a safe choice. This is somebody who is very well-reasoned and very well-regarded. Uh, in addition to what isn't known about some of the demographics, do we know what the regional makeup of the uh, applicants were? Because that was one of the major contentions with this pick. That's right, Scott. One of the biggest hopes, I think, from uh, judicial spectators around the country was that Justin Trudeau would not necessarily pick another judge from Atlanta, Canada, and decide instead to pick someone who is maybe a minority from somewhere other than Atlanta, Canada. The judge that is going to be replaced by Justice Rowe, Justice Cromwell, was also from Atlanta, Canada. 
And there is a constitutional convention that one justice of the Supreme Court of Canada comes from Atlantic Canada. And what Justin Trudeau did is he opened up the application process to judges around the country and seemed to indicate that maybe being from Atlantic Canada was not going to be the overriding factor of the judge he ultimately selected. Obviously, he decided to select somebody from Atlantic Canada, another reason why this was a safe pick. It goes without saying that the federal liberals have every single seat in Atlantic Canada and maybe wanted to placate Atlantic Canadians. That being said, however, he picked a judge from Newfoundland, which is not the most populated province in Atlantic Canada, and seems to have gone with a small L liberal judge who is well regarded and will fit in well on a small L liberal activist court. It's actually surprising to me that the court has been so activist in the last few years, given that the majority of the court was now appointed by Stephen Harper. I mean, six of the eight current judges are Harper judges, but they struck down so many of his laws in the last few years. It seems to me that's an indication that we have a fairly nonpartisan uh, judiciary in the country. We don't have those big ideological splits within the law profession like you see down south. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, Scott, it's interesting that you say that because when you think about what we were mentioning in an earlier segment, that John McCain says he's going to veto any Supreme Court nominee to come from Hillary Clinton or any Democrat, I guess, who won. You compare that to the reaction of Justice Rowe's appointment. Have either of you heard anything from the opposition parties about uh, Justice Rowe's appointment? I haven't heard anything. I think there would might have been something had they not gone Atlantic Canada. I know when Trudeau announced his search committee, he talked a lot about diversity, but they really played down the regional diversity. And I heard a lot of interviews calling out him and his justice minister saying, all right, you care about gender diversity, you care about racial diversity, you care about ethnic diversity, etc., etc. Do you care about regional diversity too? And they sort of hemmed and hawed and said, well, we're going to look at the best person for the job who also promotes a more diverse court. It's almost like they were trying to reframe the argument to, well, regional diversity doesn't actually matter, but then maybe those arguments did win the day. And they went, well, politically and sort of historically, maybe they even got advice that said if they don't appoint an Atlantic Canada judge, that they could face a legal challenge maybe from another judge. I know Harper ran into trouble with one of the judges he tried to appoint I think you're right on the money in terms of potential uh, critique, potential attack coming from other parties if an Atlantic judge wasn't selected. Back to Scott's point, just focusing on how nonpartisan this process seems to be, you look at the board that selected, uh, that shortlisted the candidates. It was headed by former Prime Minister Kim Campbell. And I should add, by the way, that all of the board members were named. This is probably the first time a group like this has been named, although we have no idea how their processes of picking applicants actually worked. To Scott's point, the process by which these individuals were selected was probably purposely nonpartisan, and the outcome, as we can see, is that 
another person is being named to the court. Very peaceful process in contrast to the United States. Uh, one other thing that I really enjoy is that there's a number of justices that were appointed by, by former Prime Minister Harper who objected to the things that Prime Minister Harper was trying to do. Sex work legislation is one of them. The appointment of Mark Nadon, Ian, as you were pointing out, is another one. He faced opposition from the people he appointed, and I think that that is a strong indication that the judiciary is truly separate, truly free, and it's a, a great indication of where our courts are and where they're going. Well, let's pivot from there. It's maybe a good chance to look a bit more about Malcolm Rowe himself. I read the release about him, and then I went to his Wikipedia page and discovered it was made the same day he was announced. Like, I was looking at a two-hour-old Wikipedia page that had been edited by two people who had basically read the announcement to when this guy is now on the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> and I joke that his history seems a little fishy, but only because he's done a lot of sort of maritime law and done a lot of issues around fisheries and those kind of issues. What I personally found really interesting was he was apparently involved in the constitutional amendment in Newfoundland that ended the separate school board there. I know a lot of people in Alberta personally who are opposed to the Catholic school board being fully funded there, and they run up to that argument all the time that, well, it's in the Constitution, therefore we can never get rid of it. And, well, now there's a man on the Supreme Court who affected that change in one province. I mean, I don't know if that will affect any arguments for secularism further down the road, but beyond that, is there anything you can tell us about who Malcolm Rowe is? Uh, sure. I'll just preface this discussion by saying that one of the most interesting things about this new process is that Justice Rowe's application, including the questions that were asked of these candidates, was posted online, which anyone can look at. The questions included a whole range of things, in asking about his work experience, asking about influential decisions that he was a part of, asking what the proper role of a judge in a constitutional democracy is. I mean, these were tricky questions, and I was really impressed with the quality of his answers. To answer your question, Ian, what sort of a judge is he? Justice Rowe is very well regarded in Newfoundland and Labrador. You can see that in the comments that are coming out of uh, the Bar Association in Newfoundland and Labrador. They're very happy that he was selected, and they consider him to be seemingly unanimously a great choice uh, for the job, and he is I think if I did mention this before, he is Newfoundland and Labrador's first Supreme Court justice. He is not only known for maritime law, which seems to be like a prerequisite of every province in Atlantic Canada. I wouldn't be surprised if half their bar exam is asking maritime law questions. He is also a guru when it comes to sentencing uh, in criminal law. This is really important, uh, in my opinion, because... The Supreme Court of Canada hears mostly criminal cases. You can appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada as a matter of right if you have a dissent uh, in a criminal case that gets to the, the local court of appeal level. The fact that he is so well regarded in sentencing plays is, is very important for that reason. One thing I can tell you in reading some of his decisions, aside from them being fairly well organized and well thought out, is that they've been cited across jurisdictional borders, which isn't necessarily rare, but the degree to which it has been cited, specifically when it comes to joint sentencing, 
when you have two different crimes that have been committed and you're, you're hearing what kind of sentence you're going to get together. He has one case that's been cited over 100 times across six different provinces. Recent decisions that have been cited over 75 times in Quebec and Ontario. So this is a guy who is whose decisions have been used, have been considered in other jurisdictions, and I can't imagine a higher accolade than that, right? If, if you're a judge in Quebec and you're deferring to, to someone in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, to me, that says a lot about the quality of his decisions. Yeah, and I know with, I uh, believe it was Justice Brown, there's when he got appointed, some people took some issues with some stuff he'd written in the past, I think on a law blog or whatever. But uh, from what I've heard with uh, Malcolm Rowe, I've heard nothing bad about the person at all. And everything I've heard has been really good and uncontroversial. So yeah, it seems like a solid pick to, to me. I'd say the most controversial thing is what he wrote uh, in one of his answers, that it was the appropriate role of a Supreme Court justice to more or less make law, whereas courts of appeal in the various provinces are correctional courts. In essence, they mostly correct the mistakes made by trial judges or judges of first instance. And what's interesting is this is a a hot topic in academia. It's something that's debated more south of the border, whether judges should really be making this kind of law. It's more accepted in Canada. It's something that a lot of people latched on to, but this goes part and parcel with the idea that the Constitution is like a living tree. It, it adapts to changing times. So to one of your questions, Ian, about how he is going to look at questions uh, from a secular point of view, I mean, I think that's necessarily so. He's taking a document that, you know, our first Constitution, 1867, he's taking that document and he's saying he's going to look at it through a modern lens. It's a very small L liberal thing. And I think it's a great thing. Uh, just from my own point of view, this seems to be a judge that is going to really try to take diverse viewpoints, even though, as I said earlier, he, you know, is another white male on the court. In his questions, you can see that he is truly making an attempt to bring a diverse view how successful he is in bringing a diverse view as a white educated male it goes to we'll, we'll just have to see but if you had to pick a white educated male it seems like this is a pretty good white educated male to pick he might have just been streets ahead of everyone else that yeah maybe you could not pick him yeah going forward i guess we have beverly mclaughlin's probably the next to retire she's been instrumental in arguably in the shape of the court over the last 20 years. I know I've read a lot of her decisions personally, and every time I read one of the ones she's written, they're just beautiful. Like, at least I really agree with them, and then they seem really great. She'll probably be retiring in 2018, that, or that's mandatory retirement, I guess. And she's also BC's representative. So I guess the question will be, will Trudeau repeat this process then, I think? It was very successful this time, it seemed like. To me, it seemed like it was a success. Hopefully, the process becomes more transparent in the future. That would be my sincere hope. I would love to see some statistics about or regarding who is applying, who's on the short list, who's on the long list, what specific attributes the, the board is looking for when they pick a candidate 
my sincere hope really is that we don't go backwards, that we keep the amount of transparency that we have now. But to me, this has been the most successful selection process that I have witnessed as a lawyer, which is to say in the past two months and going forwards, I, I hope that this continues. You'll probably not know the answer to this question, but do you know if the selection committee is subject to access to information laws? Could a, I don't know. Okay. No, I don't know. And that's a really good That'd question. That'd be an interesting thing yeah. for someone with a... I imagine someone is looking at that question yeah. somewhere. That's why we have a few journalists left in this country. <laughs> One last thing I'll just say about uh, Chief Justice McLaughlin, further to your point. She has been so instrumental in bringing the uh, judges together. Just to get my glasses on here for a second, what Chief Justice McLaughlin did is she started bringing judges together to make sure that there weren't like six or five different decisions, different concurring decisions, dissenting decisions. She has tried to bring the court into harmony. Some say that this has made it more difficult to understand what the majority is really trying to get at. It's made the law more convoluted. I would disagree with that. I think McLaughlin has done a good job of bringing the court together so that we don't have 333 decisions or 441 decisions that lawyers have to sift through and try to figure out where the majority is. Now, we might have a concurring decision, we might have a dissenting decision, but the, the law is, in my view, easier to understand uh, than it has been in the past, and she will be missed. It opens up a, a bit of a political question, since when she leaves... Does British Columbia feel like we should have uh, another judge on the court? Is that something that's really important to the province? Or is it more important that we select somebody from, say, Quebec or from the territories or my home province of Manitoba who can not only speak both languages but maybe is a minority or uh, a person of Indigenous descent? It'll be really interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, then that's something I think is probably going to be fairly controversial Generally, BC's just lumped in the general west, so with regards to your Manitoba hypothetical, I don't see that as being particularly controversial. But what I could see being a major uh, flashpoint is the bilingualism question, because Trudeau's definitely made a point of emphasizing that he wants all future uh, appointments to be bilingual, but the rate of bilingualism in the west is minuscule and they take that already small rate and can then apply it to a small fraction of the population who are judges just how many good candidates are there that meet both criteria and then if you start looking into other demographics you want to look at I, I could see it being quite an issue to find someone who meets all of those criteria absolutely going forward are there any key Supreme Court of Canada cases you're watching for this fall? There's one that is really interesting. There's a First Nation that's challenging British Columbia under the charter, under the freedom of religion. They are arguing that uh, a new ski resort that is being built is going to infringe on their freedom of religion because a spirit that they hold ver uh, very close to their religious identity was born where this ski lodge is going to be built, and it goes there to heal itself uh, and returns from there to the spirit world. 
This is going to be a very fascinating case because it approaches the intersection not only of indigenous rights, but also of, uh, of religious rights. And I'm very curious to see how the Supreme Court of Canada approaches this unique question. Yeah, it's one I've been sort of tangentially following. Fascinating case that I don't actually know what how I feel about it because it's this confusing question of whose rights take priority in this question and a big problem with every sort of issue every time this comes up in BC is this sort of unseated land question this the Brits basically just came in planted flags everywhere and said this is ours and didn't even pass their usual like bill in parliament saying we've agreed it's ours now they just started building homes and now there's this dual claim on the land even under British law as far as I understand it and that's just messy and so you get these issues are just going to keep coming up it'll definitely be interesting to watch so in this case so far the first nations group has lost both the trial and the appeal is that correct yeah yeah and so it'll be the question now of whether they can win their arguments at the supreme court of canada and find and essentially set this down as a pretty wide-ranging decision yeah no matter what they say yeah it's going to be a very important decision there's all sorts of implications, not just uh, in terms of real estate development, but also in terms of what the what is contained in, in the freedom of religion. Uh, there's other decisions that are important as well coming out of British Columbia. There's uh, one decision that uh, is trying to force Google to block search results, even outside of British Columbia, uh, which is very interesting. It's the sort of right to be forgotten. I mean, I lived in the UK for a couple of years and Europe essentially passed this. I think it came through the European Court of Human Rights. And now when you go to a Google website in Europe, there's a sort of, there's omitted search results because the court said we had to hide these things and someone's appealed. For some reason, BC is just this like activist haven. I mean, we also have this Facebook complaint I see in this article we're sort of scrolling through where someone's saying Facebook's violating their privacy. I don't know much about that case, but then there's also the BCTF is finally reaching the Supreme Court of Canada over, I think this is a 10-year-old fight over the last time, the previous time the government legislated them back to work, and that'll be a huge case for union rights across the country. Uh, the, not only union rights, but the right to assemble. The, we have a number of charter cases uh, that are coming before this court, which is relatively new. As you mentioned, most of the appointments are uh, Harper's. So they've come relatively recently. And it will it will be interesting to read uh, Justice Rowe's first opinion. Hopefully it comes soon because he has uh, very big shoes to fill. I thought you were going to say his very big opinions. <laughs> yeah, uh, the guy that he's replacing, Justice Cromwell, wrote the Cotter decision. I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with that decision. Uh, it had to do with an individual who was subject to interrogation tactics because he used to be a child soldier. And uh, Justice Cromwell wrote the decision essentially saying that Cotter's rights had been violated. Uh, his his right to uh, life li and liberty had been, had been violated. So he has big shoes to fill is, is all I'm trying to say. But it, it, he seems like he's a pretty smart guy. Very exciting. So we got some news out of the 
conservative leadership race. Uh, two more candidates from BC this time have announced their intention to run. We have Andrew Satson Jr. as uh, a former MP for North Vancouver and a Vancouver businessman, Rick Peterson. So I'm not even sure how many this brings it up to now in terms of I think at this point, basically, uh, a conservative membership comes with a leadership bid. <laughs> Everyone and their dog. So yeah, uh, so for a little background, Andrew Satson Jr., son of a BC businessman who made his uh, fortune on a, several different companies, including uh, Grouse Mountain and the Granville Island Hotel. And uh, the other person is Rick Peterson, Vancouver businessman, who unsuccessfully ran for the BC Conservative Leadership Party. Which is not a difficult... There doesn't tend to be a lot of competition for that one, as their latest leadership race demonstrated when the guy who quit won it again. Yeah, which does not bode well that if you, if you can't win a uh, BC Conservative Leadership race that nobody wants... How good are you going to be at running the uh, leadership race for the federal party with a lot of you know, big competition in there? One thing I was wondering even a month or two ago was why there were no BC candidates. And now we have two, but neither of them really jump out as the sort of frontrunners. I mean, no one in the race now even looks like a frontrunner as Tony Clement has stepped aside from it. Bernier's been polling... Uh, to the extent we have polling on it, better than the rest. But even he's 14%, 20 maybe. Well, Bernier's doing the best of a small field, and when he entered wasn't sort of considered the natural heir apparent, is what I meant by that. I guess he was in cabinet, but no one sort of pegged him as the next leader. He's not the Lisa Rate or the... Especially because he left cabinet on such uh, bad terms. So, which will be interesting when he, if he gets the leadership, because we'll have our own mishandling classified documents scandal in a candidate for highest office up here now. So yeah, for those who aren't familiar, uh, he got turfed as Minister of Foreign Affairs when he left classified NATO documents at his girlfriend who had ties to the Hells Angels house. I've Online, seen a fair number of comments. I don't know how representative this are of people who'd be inclined to vote for him without this mark against him, saying they're not not really wanting to support him with this. So I think that's definitely going to be something that's sure to come up in the uh, first debate on the ninth, and uh, certainly imagine the uh, liberal parties preparing some attack ads for it should he actually get the nomination. So out of these two new BC names, Saxton and Peterson, do we think either is bilingual at all? Do either of them know French? Because at this level for federal politics, it's sort of a prerequisite if you want to be prime minister. Uh, Saxton states he's functional but not fluent. What does that mean, functional? I think I'm functional because I remember like seven words from elementary school French. Like if I put my iPhone... In French language, do I have a functional knowledge of French? Uh, I think functional knowledge refers to the ability to carry on basic conversations and conduct some work. Bonjour, je m'appelle Micah. Is that... I mean, seriously, 
No, that's that would ju- that wouldn't be considered functional. Uh, functional means you can get by, but you are by no means mistaken as a either a fluent speaker or a native speaker. So it's workable, but not good French. I guess both Stephen Harper and Elizabeth May probably started their leaderships in that realm, though, to their credit. Stephen Harper, kind of circa 2000 to 2004, probably would have been described as functional, but not fluent. So I guess they're, as far as I can tell, just essentially the token candidates, like someone was putting out feelers saying, look, we need someone to sell memberships in BC to try to make this a national competition. That's one thing parties really like to do, is make sure they have a representative or a candidate in every province or region so that they can start building those bases. There might be no expectation that they win, but then they at least have more money in the chest. They have more names in the database. Honestly, I can't see either of these people being more than that. Maybe Rick Peterson is thinking he's Donald Trump and can come from outside and take it over, but I don't know him at all. Maybe he's, I would hope he's a lot more reasonable, but... On the other hand, how many people knew of Mulroney before he decided that he wanted to run for leader of the PCs? Because he didn't have a long history in the House at all. It is such a fragmented run that you almost think that somebody could rise up out of the woodwork to take it. The fact that Jason Kenney is not running, I think in a lot of ways, opens up the door. I have never really heard of either of these guys, I'll be completely honest with you. So I, I guess it remains to be seen at this. I mean, if you want to call it a debate, I think it might just be 15 people either agreeing with each other or talking completely past each other. It'll be the the first Republican primary debate where there's 15 people up there and each gives a, you know, two minutes and then you're done because you don't have time for anything else. Yeah, that's uh, very likely to be the case. Um, but this is notable in that it's run differently than the Republican primary. As we mentioned before, the Conservatives use a ranked ballot that's weighted by riding. So it's going to be interesting to see where everyone stats up. I've feeling there's going to be a lot of also-rans kind of clustered to the middle on most ballots. Uh, you'll have the people who everybody really or someone really likes somebody really hates and then you'll have the forgettable people kind of filling out the middle i'm still expecting we're going to see half or two-thirds of these candidates drop out maybe not by the first debate but after a few months yeah the final uh, payment for the uh, leadership fees due in february and so whoever hasn't raised a hundred thousand by then will be out for sure well, that'll be the date I guess we're watching for. Yes. You know, pretty much put, uh, Bernie's already passed that mark, Chong's getting pretty close, but uh, none of the other, and I think uh, Kelly H is around there too, but as far as I know, they're kind of the only three that are really out in front on the fundraising. Speaking of the leadership race, we got a few policy announcements out of uh, contenders for the leadership. Uh, Bernier uh, announced that he wants to remove the Canada Health transfer entirely and transfer uh, tax points, essentially cut federal taxes by the equivalent amount that the provinces step in. And this, uh, of course, coincides with the uh, Health Minister's Conference, which, unsurprisingly, 
resulted in the provincial health ministers asking Ottawa for a whole bunch more money. Bernier's announcement isn't that surprising. I mean, it fits perfectly in his attempt. I think it's a, a sincere attempt to be the you know libertarian candidate who get the government out of the way kind of ideology. I, I think this is a kind of interesting one because it's there's actually a fairly solid argument behind it that constitutionally speaking, healthcare is a provincial responsibility, and since the provinces have the ability to uh, raise taxes themselves, they should be responsible for both the revenue side and the delivery side of the healthcare system, and that this is, a, in anything, more realigning uh, the system rather than this multi-level component that we currently get, which leads to, as we were referring to earlier with the school board situation, you split responsibilities and it kind of leads to an ineffectual way to hold politicians to account because they'll always blame the other level of government. So there is, I think, some interesting ideas embedded in there. It could be interesting to see what would happen should it be implemented. It isn't on its face that crazy an idea, but it would be a significant departure from how things are currently. It'd be interesting to see if he can push that argument through the Conservative Party because that's clearly outside their existing policy. They, are, as far as I know, don't have any policy in their platform about essentially tearing up the Canada Health Act. Yeah, they um, did not put as many strings as the Liberals did on the uh, health transfers. So it would, I suppose, be a continuation of that general trend. But uh, it would be yeah, a significant departure from how things are currently. All right, any other policy announcement you want to... Yeah, well, the other big one that came out was Michael Chan put out this basically, I think, first policy announcement of the campaign beyond what he said when he started in, and he uh, would like to privatize the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation's insurance component. He'd keep the regulatory uh, components with the government, but there'd be no uh, federal underwriting of mortgage insurance. That is about as, like niche wonky of an announcement which seems perfectly in with Michael Chong's character. Yeah, it's, it's... Which isn't to knock the policy itself. It's just to say, how do you sell that? Yeah, it's pitched as a, this is how you're one way to help housing prices. And, I mean, it's the federal government. They're pretty limited in what they can actually do on it because it's mostly provincial and municipal policies that really need to change. But it is a somewhat complicated second-order effect of a change in insurance policy affecting housing prices that is perhaps quite wonky but hard to sell to the general public. Yeah, I can see his desire to try to speak to the housing crisis as it is a pressing and current issue. But just from a strategic point of view, using that as, like, your first big announcement just seems like you've just lost people. Like, it, even if it's the right thing to do, which I don't know, I, like, honestly don't know, it's just going to get lost in the weeds. It's. It seems like he doesn't have any big ideas to motivate or inspire people. If, if he's looking for a way to get the national government out of 
underwriting mortgages. If this is his big announcement, I, I would consider that to be a pretty uninspiring show from Michael Tron. I, this seems like a guy who has a lot of great ideas. He's brought some great ideas to the House, some nonpartisan ideas that were pretty warmly received by the entire House. And this is what he came up with as his first announcement. I mean, it's, it's surprising to me because there were a lot of people, probably from outside of the Conservative Party, who expected Chong to do some really good things. And I would hope that his next announcement has more teeth than this one. Maybe it's a slow boil. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause, uh, his positions on uh, carbon taxes, on uh, democratic reform, have uh, been quite interesting. And I think this was a lot of potential there uh, to be kind of the wonky change candidate. Or at, at least to pull some of the red Tories back from the Liberal Party, right? They might be getting dissatisfied with how Trudeau has been leading his government. It seems like Chong is the guy that is well-positioned to start siphoning those in, those voters back. Yes, and uh, he has said he's going to be putting out a costed uh, platform at some point this fall, so we'll have to see what that is. There'll probably be a little more meat there, but yeah, as the first one, I think we can all pretty much agree that this policy announcement's a bit of a bust. Switching from the conservative talk, and maybe talking about busts still, we have news that another BC uh, member of parliament, Peter Julian, has resigned as the NDP's House leader, not to run for the leadership, but to explore a leadership bid, which isn't even a soft launch. It's a very weird way to say, I might run for it, which almost, to me, doesn't necessitate quitting as House Leader. Yeah, this is... I don't know, everyone seems oddly reluctant to join in on the leadership bid for the NDP, and I think it's just another example of that. Yeah, there's a lot of articles floating around right now because it's the one-year anniversary of the election, and there's sort of all these post-mortems and talking heads going over, well, you know, where are the Liberals at, where are the Conservatives at, and the sort of diagnosis of the NDP is, are they basically getting to the point where they're so listless that they're going to reach their leadership and the only person still around is going to be Tom Mulcair and they'll just go back to him by default? Very well appeasing the Bring Back Tom Mulcair campaign that I know is running on Facebook and maybe has two or 3,000 people on it. Yeah, I mean, at, th at this point, if you have $30,000, you could basically be the NDP leader. So you have Peter Julian, who is a well-respected MP. I don't know that he's the most charismatic. He's not sort of the biggest name MP from the NDP out of BC. That's probably Nathan Cullen, who's already said he won't seek the leadership for his sort of focus on the family position. But it kind of makes me wonder why, like, why take this soft launch? I know the strategists, when they were talking about the progressive conservative leadership, they're talking, they talked a lot of smack about soft launches and I just wish they were still around to try to break this down. Like, what does this even mean to explore a leadership bid? I actually saw on my Facebook feed, Peter Julian ran Facebook ad about he's exploring this leadership bid. And there were lots of supportive people. I mean, he's fairly popular in his writing, but it's a good question where he's going from here. You, you know what's interesting to reflect on? You look at all of the candidates from the last NDP election. 
it seems like the only leadership, potential leadership candidate is Nikki Ashton. Now, I can't think of anyone else. I don't think Peggy Nash is running. No, Peggy Nash isn't running. Brian Taub's very, I think, happy in his senior leadership role in the Nolde yeah, government. Obviously, Mulcair isn't running again. Is <laughs> Probably. Well, I might default into it at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But you think about it, like, it seems to me like the NDP is going through a true soul-searching moment. They really need to figure out who they are, and I think that that conversation precludes someone like Nathan Cullen from participating because he is universally liked, but what is the foundation there? What is the true identity of the NDP? I think that you look at Nikki Ashton, there is a identity there. I think that she's probably much further left than Tom Mulcair was when it comes to her politics. I don't know what Peter Julian's background is. I don't know where he really falls on the spectrum. I think that this NDP leadership is well positioned for somebody who has taken strong views in the past, like Miss Ashton. Yeah, it's, uh, at this point, I think someone who can stake out a pretty solid position is going to go a long way in this one. But you're all right. The, the NDP really doesn't seem to know what they want to be. And... I think they're going to have to figure that out. But there's a few big unanswered questions with regard to them. Both, do they want to be a ideological party that kind of remains true to itself? Or do they want to contest power, maybe compromise on a few issues, but potentially win the PMO? And also there's the split that's increasingly happening between the uh, blue-collar union side of the party and the urban progressive side. You saw that last election here on the pipeline issue, and I think you'll see that going forward where I think we're going to increasingly see there's going to be a divide between those two factions of the party and how they're going to sort that out, and I think it's going to be an open question. Well, and I think there's also a pessimism that Trudeau is just going to win the next election. I think that's what's held back some of the bigger names in the Conservative Party from running. They figure, we'll just write this one off. And the NDP is really in the, well, we lost a whole bunch of votes to the Liberals who who stole our best platform ideas, maybe you could even say. And now they have to sort of wait and see how it plays out. Yeah. To be fair to, to Nathan Cullen, actually, I think that that might be the bigger issue that you've identified. The thing that I really like about Nathan Cullen is his ability to sort of connect to people on a post-political basis. Like it almost seems like he's coming at you as somebody who isn't a politician. And it seems to me like the liberals have tried to corner that market with Justin Trudeau. They've tried to really have Justin Trudeau presented as a post-political figure. And it, I think that it is difficult to try and fight that sort of appeal with the same kind of identity. Nathan's also a, a very smart guy, having met him before. I just don't know if the if the climate is right for someone like him to be successful at the reins of the NDP leader. Now, I'll say that with, with some hesitation, because there's a lot of time coming. As I'm sure the two of you know, Justin Trudeau said for a long time that he wasn't going to run for Liberal leader, and then 
suddenly changed his mind, and that's a huge tradition in the States to do stuff, to do something like that. So only time will tell, and if nobody enters the race, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we'll have another election with Tom Mulcair as leader. It would be really hilarious, actually, to see Peter Julian make this move to leave, to quit House Leader, to say, I'm exploring my leadership bid, and then to come in like a month or two and be like, nah. Like, does anyone actually expect that to happen? I think it's pretty unlikely at this point. But, uh, you do, you did raise a good point about the, there's a big problem, I think, with running a Trudeau-like, you know, very charismatic, all about the personal connection leader against Trudeau. It's the, uh, you don't want to fight the last war, and I think this is, I think going for a Trudeau-like leader would be trying to fight the last war. By the time the next election or the one after comes around, I think that sort of style is going to have faded a bit from the public's perspective, and it won't be quite as charming as it was in 2015. And the best path forward, I think, is to pick the opposite of Trudeau. I mean, maybe not full-on Harper, but somebody who's more of a serious policy watch type. Like a Mulcair? Yeah, or... Because we don't have many people running on the NDP side, I'm not really sure you're suggesting this, but... Like, it's Megan Leslie. It's You're describing Megan Leslie right now. Yeah, uh, someone like her, or, or on the conservative side, like Bernier or Chan, who's reasonably heavy on the policy and can act as that counterpoint. And put that with the two-election strategy, and I think there's a good, you know, good path forward there. A little less clear on the NDP side, just because they there isn't an established path forward to power for them. But uh, yeah, it's going to be something to watch. So while we're on Trudeau, Maybe let's go into his latest announcement, sort of announcement, his interview with Le Devoir that was republished in iPolitics, so English Canada could actually read it, that he's sort of floating this idea that maybe Canadians don't have this appetite for electoral reform now that the Liberals are in charge, and the urgency of getting rid of the Conservatives through electoral reform is gone. And I know this is pissed off and stabbed in the back so many of the strategic voting supporters who came to him during the election because he said so clearly so many times where the liberals had a lot of sort of you know wishy-washy promises he said very clearly that was the last first past the post election and now it's this sort of well maybe we don't need to change things well it's not an unexpected shift it's entirely expected for me somewhat cynical perspective because yeah the, the liberal platform was very much a third party will throw everything that looks good up there and not worry too much about the implementation so that's definitely been something they've had to confront and you've seen that in a couple different files and i think this is one of them plus there's always going to be a fair bit of reluctance within the liberal party over the last couple of years electoral reform's definitely been phrased as the we have to stop this because the conservatives are the ones who benefit so much but you know over the last hundred years um the liberals have been the ones who've benefited primarily from first past the post especially along on the older uh batch who were 
around for the for Chen and Martin years, there just isn't that much enthusiasm to change a system that served the Liberal Party pretty well. I completely agree with you. I think that this was... I was telling Ian earlier today that I felt like this was a serious, unforced error from Trudeau. He's made some other mistakes, which Ian helpfully identified uh, previous to this, but this was an... This was a promise that Trudeau campaigned on, that this would be the last first-past-the-post campaign. And for him to dismiss it in this way so flippantly is a serious mistake. I think that there were a lot of ways for him to deal with with first-past-the-post or electoral reform, even if he really didn't, if we're going to be cynical here, even if he really did not seek to enact any change. There are a number of ways he could have stalled, he could have blamed other parties, and I mean, let's be frank here, it is going to be tough to change the voting system. You don't have a solid majority for any for any one system, let alone an overwhelming majority, something that everyone would accept without a problem. You have the NDP pushing for proportional representation. I think the Greens are also pushing for proportional representation. And then you have the Conservatives who, by and large, want to keep first past the post and the Liberals are split in all sorts of different directions. How are you going to make everyone happy? You could have just taken the avenue that you couldn't reach consensus. And because you couldn't reach consensus, it's best to stay, stay with the status quo rather than just saying, well, we have a great government now. We should just keep the system as is because no one's complaining about who's in power. That is, uh, in my opinion, demonstrates the misapprehension of the need for proportional or for uh, voting reform. I'm not sure if there's so much an error on this part. It's more of a strategic testing of uh, the waters. There's been several times where Trudeau's floated an idea and kind of seen where it lands and adjusted accordingly. Um, the Supreme Court with the Atlantic Canada issue was one. And it wouldn't be surprised if this is a trial balloon to see just how committed the public really is to electoral reform. Like, I definitely think it is that trial balloon, but I think he sort of filled it with lead when he launched it and just like threw it on the ground and it just made a mess. Like, as Mika was saying, there are ways you could do this. If you're going to change your policy, that's what you do. You sort of do that test, get the sense of the public, and then slowly work them up to, well, you know, the Conservatives got in our way and we can't do it. This was him just sort of going out there and saying, well, people, like, he had the Conservative Party, who should be his natural ally if he doesn't want to do reform, criticizing him. Because his, his line was basically, well, Canadians love me so much, why would they want any other different system? I think that's a gross exaggeration, but that's how easy it was for the Conservatives to play their own line. Well, it does kind of read that way. Yeah, which is entirely Trudeau's fault. One thing he got criticized for before the election, and one reason the Conservatives you know, ran the Just Not Ready ads, was because he had this history of making of putting his foot in his mouth on big policy issues, he'd go on interviews and just, even if he has that deep understanding of policy, sound like he doesn't. And this is that happening again, 
he could have easily just talked about, well, consensus is going to be hard. We're going to work our hardest to keep the commitment, but we'll have to see what the committee comes out with. Like the committee hasn't that's running around right now discussing this hasn't even come back with a report that he can go, well, that's going to be impossible to get to. He's bit his own nose off here. Yeah, I think they've kind of mishandled the file from the start on this one. But yeah, I think this is one of those things where I can definitely see the strategic plan on there. But I do think it's going to be eventually yet another point on the postmortem of this where the liberals haven't done things that well. For such a big file, appointing a rookie minister was probably a bad call, and there's been a few different uh, foot-in-mouth moments that have resulted from that. I think most notably probably that Twitter's a better way to gauge the public opinion than a referendum. It really didn't go over all that well. There's been a few other questionable things on this file, so it wouldn't surprise me if they haven't exactly been putting that as front and center as they've tried to make it appear in the public. Well, maybe we'll shelve the electoral reform discussion for now because we're going to come back to it in deep form later this month for our extended episode. I'm sure this is already going to be an extended episode, but that's fine. It's been interesting. Why don't you kick us off on our last topic before we sign off? Okay. So the BC government's announced that they're going to start public consultations for a fixed link between the Lower Mainland and Sunshine Coast, starting from October 18th. So that's actually already passed to the 27th. Uh, in Gibsons, Powell River, basically the whole Sunshine Coast, since both Squamish and West Vancouver. So there's several things they're looking at, but I think it's definitely going to be a potentially complex and divisive issue because... The Sunshine Coast really likes there. We're not actually part of Metro Vancouver. And we're not just going to be a suburb and a park for, you know, housing refugees to try and buy up before that gets crazy expensive too. And so I think you're probably going to see a fair bit of pushback from the Sunshine Coast, at least, on this one. Even if everyone does hate the BC Ferries. Yeah, I always have trouble seeing who's the natural constituency for the connection. Like there are a lot of people, myself included, who like, who I imagine softly like the idea, like if you could just drive straight to Gibson's, it'd be beautiful. Every time I'm up there, it's a wonderful place. But, you know, having a bunch of people around Metro Vancouver who kind of like the idea versus a whole bunch of people on the Sunshine Coast who hate it, I don't see it happening. I see it. Yeah, I, I think... The support on the Sunshine Coast is primarily among the people who benefit from tourism. And uh, if you're in a tourism-related job or have a tourism-related business, it's generally on the good side because that means uh, you're more accessible. But I can definitely see the just residents of the area not liking it at all. But yeah, something else I'm going to be want to follow on is just what the... Uh, price tag on this thing's going to be so that's not a I believe it's a three four kilometer span there they'd have to put in and that is not uh going to be a cheap project and with infrastructure already underfunded in the uh metro vancouver area trying out for more uh, transit and other improvements i could see there being a lot of pushback 
if Vancouver doesn't get the funding it needs, but they're putting a bridge to a few thousand inhabitants on Sunshine Coast. Well, we'll keep an eye on the Sunshine Coast and whether we'll be able to drive there. And that has been Politicos. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Politicos Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.